Our scripture reading for this morning is select passages from Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commanded for. Verse 7. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. This is the word of the Lord. For the first time in Metro's history, we're going to be looking through a New Testament epistle. And we're beginning with the book of Hebrews. And scholars say the book of Hebrews acts as a New Testament commentary to the Old Testament. That means right in the New Testament, right within the Bible, you have validation, you have a commentary, a teaching about, to explain the Old Testament. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to people who were suffering, people who were experiencing hardship. Uh, maybe they were losing their jobs. Maybe they were kind of placed on the outside, on the fringe of society. And because of that, because of the persecution, because of the hardships of persecution, they were starting to shrink back on their faith. And uh, they're going back to their old ways uh, because of the pressure, because of the hardship. Now, we're going to walk through the entire book this year. Um, but first, what we're going to do is we're going to start with chapter 11. And we're going to answer the question this fall season, what it means to have faith and then in the new year, we're going to start with chapter 1, and we're going to work our way back all the way up to the end of the book. And we're going to explore what it means to live a life, uh, trusting in Jesus, a life of faith. Now, the whole book, it counsels us. What does it teach us? What it means to face difficulty. What it takes to face the difficulties of life. How to get through the difficulties of life. What is faith? On one hand, some people say, well, faith it's just not doubting things. It's just loyalty. In other words, faith in itself is a virtue of life. On the other hand, there are people, scholars, modern people, modernists like us, will say that, well, how, why is it wrong to doubt? Uh, if I, if I, it's, it's good to doubt. It's wise and intelligent to ask questions. We live in a skeptical society. We live in an empirical society where it's, it's, you're considered sophisticated if you're able to ask questions. So faith, by its, by, uh, on one hand, is a virtue. On the other hand, they say it's skepticism that's the virtue. Doubting is the virtue. The Bible's understanding of faith can't be absent of sophisticated complex thinking uh, and it's so much more understanding, so much more sophisticated and complex than either of the two views that we just talked about. This passage is what's going to get us started. Life transforming faith. That's what we're going to talk about. According to this text, has four things. One, it's got to be rational. We have to think it through. 
That's what you're going to see in the first three verses. Two, it's got to be reorienting. Sorry, it's got to be real. That's verses four to eight. Three, it's got to be reorienting. We see that in verses nine to ten. And then lastly, it's got to be renewing. Faith is rational, it's real, it's reorienting, and it's renewing. First, faith is rational. Verses 1 to 3. Now, faith is what? Being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. The word certain in the Greek there is a word that means to validate, to assess and validate through evidence, to test It's why uh, in some of the older translations of the Bible, the word actually used here is the evidence. Faith as evidence. Faith is tested. Faith is tested and true. Verse 3, by faith we understand. That's a cognitive word, understand. By faith we understand. The word understand is another word that means to think, to reason. In other words, what, what the author is saying here is, by faith, because we've tested Because we've thought it through, through our experience, we have a a reasoning of truth, a reasoning of reality. Through our thinking, through our reasoning, we have a perception that the visible world that we see today, that the world that we see today by itself makes no sense at all. It doesn't add up unless there is something that is supernatural. There's a supernatural reality that we do not see underlying all these things. That there's a reality underlying the visible reality. That there's a real reality. There's reality and there's a real reality. You come to that understanding through what? Blind leaps? No. You can't do that through blind leaps. Nowhere does the Bible ever imply that faith is living in line with what you do not know. Faith is living in line with what you do know. It's through thinking through reasoning. How do you do that? Well, how do you judge, for instance? We make statements and we say that racial prejudice is wrong. Racial injustice is wrong. What gives you the basis uh, for saying that? How do you say that oppression is wrong? We look out and uh, in our society and we look at other societies and we say that those societies are oppressive. What gives us the basis to make that kind of judgment? How do we say that rape is wrong? All societies will say that rape, certain things are essentially inherently wrong. But what gives us the basis by, to, to say such a thing? Because if you think about it, if the visible world is all there is, then any thoughts against violence is really just a feeling. I was a chem major. It's really just biochemistry. It's really just biology. If the visible world is all there is, if there's no supernatural then we're all here by accidents. We're all really products of molecules that have collided in the right way at the right place at the right time, all by accident, all by chance. There's no purpose. There's nothing undergirding our judgment. It's impossible to judge any action. Think about that. You ever read Frederick Nietzsche? Frederick Nietzsche, I imagine not many people aspire to read Frederick Nietzsche. Thus speaks Zarathustra. There's a story in this book, this deeply philosophical book by Nietzsche. And uh, Nietzsche gave birth to a world of skeptics, uh, uh, skeptic commentators. But um, in the story, you have this acrobat that's walking a tightrope. And uh, he's doing what an acrobat is called to do. And there's a clown that's kind of bouncing around. And the acrobat, the tightrope kind of wobbles. And the acrobat loses his balance and hurdles to the ground and falls to the ground. Now, at that time, Zarathustra, he is the main character of this book. He is awakened with this new knowledge 
that there is no God. This new knowledge that there is no God, and as a result, moral judgments are really just all relative. And so he's running through the towns of the world, preaching this new enlightenment that he's discovered. And he comes to this acrobat who has now fallen to the ground and he's dying. And he's just gasping for air, gasping for breath. And what happens is Zarathustra comes to him and the man says, can you do something for me? Can you pray for me? Can you pray for me because I'm dying here? And Zarathustra goes on to explain his philosophy to tell him that there is no God. And what he actually says is, as a result, there is no devil and no hell. In other words, when you die, there's nothing. There's nothing. You lived for nothing. And this man, as he's dying, it says that he comes to a sense of peace in this new enlightenment. And he says to him in response, if you speak truth, then I lose nothing when I lose my life. You see, if he's true, if that is true, then what is moral conviction but a feeling? What is moral conviction, according to Zarathustra, but a shackle, a chain on us? Everything at best is an opinion. And so that means you can't make any judgments. You can't make any moral judgments. Not against oppression, not against racial prejudice, not against rape, not against anything, not against any type of oppression. You see that? And yet we have, we know, based on what we've seen, based on what we've experienced, based on uh, where we are, even assessing our visible world, we know with certainty that oppression is evil that there is a sense of morality, that we can make moral judgments in our lives. You know, I I was a a bio and chem major, double major, and uh, uh, one of the people that we worship in biology is who? Francis Crick, right? One of the founders of biochemistry, so to speak. Francis Crick, the double helix DNA. Um, Francis Crick wrote a very very famous book uh, read by lots of uh, bio majors. It's called The Astonishing Hypothesis. And these are really just the opening lines of the book. Here's what he says. Your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and your your sense of free will, they're in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. In other words, what Francis Crick is saying is everything you feel, everything you experience is really nothing but random chemistry. We hear that, and, you know, in some ways, it's probably true. But in other ways, we know that there must be more. We know there must be more. For example, is love? We have lots of loves. Uh, We love our spouses. That's a kind of love. We love our families. But we also love movies. We also love books. We love art. We love tasting good food. We all love fine foods, fine wines. I love the Boston Red Sox. We love sports. We, we, we are beholden to certain teams, right? We love certain things in our lives. Any of those loves, are they nothing but the consequence of the appropriate amount of chemicals in our lives? There must be more. Is it nothing but a consequence of hormones? Because that's what Francis Crick, that's what our scientists, that's what our scholars, our commentators are saying today. Is character, our character, the sum of everything that we are. Is it really, you know, our, our, just our love for music, our love for the arts, are they just accidental patterns produced by a collision of atoms in our lives? Is that the sum of our lives? Because if so, the very things that give us pleasure, music, 
art, love, sex, these things are not really real, you see, if the world is all there is. There's no meaning in them. There's no explanation for anything. In fact, the very explanation for pleasure, according to biologists and chemists, destroy the very meaning of what they are. Do you see that? The moment you say there is a right, whether, no matter what it is, the moment you make a moral judgment, the moment you say there is such a thing as love, you're asserting that the visible world is not all there is. Your thinking, your reasoning, as they're doing, faith is beginning to help, is the beginning to help us make sense of what we see, to help us validate and assess the world that we see through our experience to assess deeper reality, deeper truth. Faith begins with the rational. It helps us make sense, sense of things about our visible world and about the unseen world. Now, the second thing we see here is that faith has to, is, has to be real. And, and uh, we see this, uh, if you go to verse 7, by faith Noah, when he was warned about things to come that were not yet seen, by the way, uh, it, they were not yet seen, he says, in the, the author says, in holy fear, he built an ark. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Now, you see something interesting here. You have Noah. Noah, then you have Abraham. We're going to be walking through every one of these uh, 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 people and individuals uh, listed in, in Hebrews 11. Later on, you have Moses. Most people think, they tend to think that faith is absent of questions. Don't doubt. Don't ask questions. That's not the way the Bible sees it here. Look at, and we're going to get to this, but look at Moses. Moses was wealthy. He was educated. He, was, he had status. He was a prince. Yet, what happened? Something happened in his life. Something came in, and it began to disturb Moses. And next thing you know, he starts to see injustice, and he starts to see oppression, the next thing you do is he starts to, you see him doing is he's identifying with the oppressed. He's identifying with the poor. This passage we read, Abraham, he's wealthy. He's entrenched in his culture. He lives in Ur. And Ur, that area, is a, it's a fertile land. It's a very prominent land, and he comes from a very prominent family. And there, that means in his home, in his secu- that was a secure place. He had safety, it's had security, it's had status. And then what happened? Something came in and started to disturb him. And the next thing you know, he leaves everything behind. He leaves Ur. Thomas Cahill, famous scholar, uh, wrote a secular book called The Gift of the Jews, and there he says, what Abram, what Abram did was unthinkable in his day. To leave his cultural context, to leave his socioeconomic context, to leave his merchant lifestyle, to leave his wealth in that way. In those days, it was considered the end of your lifeline. And it was unthinkable in his day. It was considered certain death. It was all you had back then. Now, in our lives, we all tend to go with the flow. We all tend to go with the flow. You start out, you got to get good grades in high school, you got to play sports, get your extracurriculars, you got to get those things right. You're already taught growing up to build a resume. Your parents are taught, teach you to live good lives, be good people, good citizens. Now, you're raised, you go through high school, what's the goal of high school? To get, a good, to get into a good college, to get into the right college at least, right? What's the goal of college? To get a job, to start your career to get started. Every part, every transition is a new level, a new platform to get started. 
And so there, uh, you just, we just tend to go with the flow. What happens from there? You want to grow wealthy. Build your career. Build your professional career. Buy a home. Have wealth. Have a good family. Have lots of children. Faith is a personal encounter with God that comes with a call. It comes with a call. No matter where you are in life, no matter what crossroads you are in life, no matter what you're suffering in life, something comes in and starts to disturb that and disrupt that, to stop that in its tracks, so to speak, in a way. Faith comes with a call. The call comes into Noah's life. The call comes into Abraham's life. The call comes into Moses' life. That's what we're really seeing. That's what the author is outlining here in, in Hebrews chapter 11. It becomes real, in other words. God is saying, I want you. And that is so compelling. That call is so compelling. When he says that, it makes you question everything about your life. It makes you question everything about who you are, everything about where you are, everything about what you're pursuing. What am I living for? Why am I making money? Why am I pursuing this woman? Or why am I pursuing this man? It can change your entire direction in life. You can have a very rational view of God. But until that view becomes real, until that view view becomes personal, it will never change the direction of your life and you will never live a big life, you see. A rational view of God, you will understand God in a general way. You can read the Bible and understand. You can look out in nature and understand. You come to the Bible and you start to understand a bit more deeply. You start to know things about God. Certainly, you can attend some classes and know things, learn things. You can develop a rational understanding in a general way, surmise things about God. But if, you stays, if that stays there, it will never give you joy. It will never give you hope. You see, it will never give you love for God. You see. And especially when you suffer, there will be no joy. There has to be a call, a sense that God has come into your life, a sense that God is coming and saying, I want you to follow me. I want you. Now, what does that mean? It's either there is no God and everything is meaningless, or there is a God, and if so, if there is a God, nothing can be more important than having a relationship with him. We're compelled. It moves us. It's either Jesus Christ is a moral leader, a moral teacher, a religious figure, or Jesus Christ is my substitute. God has given himself. God has come down, revealed himself, given himself for me. Now, our experiences don't always have to be dramatic experiences. Maybe dramatic inwardly, but not dramatic externally. Some of us here, we may be going through changes. We're going through lots of changes transitions and you've been sitting here and you're hearing the same thing week in and week out but now all of a sudden at some point you start to hear things differently at some point the words uh, of the bible start to look different to you 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 get a sense that god is speaking to you and so your worship your experience of worship is different you start to attend a community group. You never wanted to extend, uh, attend a community group. We, we, this church is, is uh, con- consisted, comprised of people who've really been damaged in their experience of church over the years. And you said, oh, I'm hesitant. I'm, I'm really hesitant. But one day you say, you know, maybe you're just barely entertaining the thought, maybe I should be attending a community group. And you start to go, and that experience is different for you. It's because of the call. You're getting that sense. And so faith begins with rational Faith moves into the real. Thirdly, it starts to reorient you. It's reorienting. By faith, Abram, 
when he was called to go to a place later he would receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. In other words, uh, was Abraham's life easy because of the call? No, there was lots of suffering from that point on. In fact, if you look through the history of the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, once the call comes, life is just filled with suffering. You don't have to look for suffering. There are people who think that the Christian life, you have to look for suffering. You don't have to look for suffering. Life is filled with suffering. The very nature of reorienting your foundations, reorienting your your questioning everything about your life is filled with suffering. And so was Abraham's life easy? No. Life becomes filled with uncertainties. Life becomes filled with suffering. Uh, If you want to look at a, a brief summary of the life of Abraham in Genesis, God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your context leave that's the end of the lifeline right we said go where god says i want you to trust me then god says okay we've come to this place i want you to stay here i want you to settle down here here canaan look looking around it's a barren place it's a wilderness here for how long and and god says i want you to i want you to trust me just stay and abram does god says i want you to wait and i'm going to give you a son just wait. Abram says, how long? How? My wife, I, we're old. We're very old. We're well beyond the age of even having children. God says, I want you to trust me and wait. God says, I want you to take your one and only son. I want you to sacrifice that son of yours. Abram says, why? Sacrifice my son? Why? God says, I want you to trust me. And Abram does. Well, he offers him up. Have you ever had big changes thrust into your life? Have you ever lost big in your life? In each of these cases, Abram learned, verse 10, that the world has no foundations. He's looking for a city with foundations. Abram had his orientation, his foundation set. Maybe it was on a home. Maybe it was on uh, wealth and prosperity. Maybe it was in having a family, having a son, because back then having a son meant having wealth, having longevity, having a future, having security, having status. Abram learned that the world has no foundations. And so he's looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. This world has no foundations. That's what Abram learned. You know that. I know that. You know that. I know that. Scholars will tell you that. Scientists will tell you that. Newton's second law. A lot of science today. Newton's second law. Everything is moving towards what? Entropy. The world is falling into decay. Scientists will tell you that is a foundational principle of the world, that the world is falling apart. The world is expanding and winding down at the same time. Everything in the world is unraveling. What does that mean? If you look at the foundation of your life and you say, you know, money. Money is the foundation of my life. Wealth is going to be my, the, the foundation on which my life is going to be built. Well, wealth isn't going to be able to buy you most of the things that you absolutely need in your life. Wealth can't buy you a happy family. Wealth can't buy you health. Wealth can get you great doctors, maybe great medication, but wealth can't buy you health. Wealth can't buy you relationships. 
Love can't buy you good relationships, real relationships. And eventually, you know, if you build your foundation on relationships, if you build your foundation on family, eventually we're all going to get old, too old. We're going to be, we're going to lose them all. If you build your foundation on your figure or on your looks, face it, not to, not to discourage any of you, but how you look today right now is the best that you, that you will ever look going forward. You see that? And you just missed that. Every second goes by, you were looking worse and worse. Trust me, look at my hair. I mean, I wasn't like this when this church first started, okay? Every day you were looking worse and worse. And, and I got a bad because I wasn't good from the from, to get-go, you know? I didn't have much to start with, right? We're looking worse and worse every second. Right now is the youngest you will ever be. There are no foundations, not in this world. So what does God do time and time and time again, over and over? You face crises in your life. You face crises in your life. And you say to obey God means to lose something that you would build your significance on. You come to a conclusion that to obey God is to lose something that you're going to build your security on. To obey God, you're going to lose something that you're going to build your worth on. Something in the world. That's what happened to Abraham. That's what happened to Moses. That's certainly what happened to Noah, Enoch. We're going to go through all of these uh, people uh, over the course of this fall. And... uh, and God says, time and again, God says, I want you to obey. And Abram does. Abram does obey. He leaves. He stays. He waits. He sacrifices. He offers. He makes mistakes. He sins. He backpedals. You know why? He's learning through this process that all of this, this isn't real. This isn't real reality. It's like an illusion. You see what's out there, and it's not real. There's a real reality. There's a, we're all just a mist. We're all just passing, you see. You can't build your life on any of these things. And so what Abram and this passage is calling us to do is to shift, to reorient your foundation. Something has come in and disturbed your foundation. And something has come in and disturbed your view of reality. And what happens is now you're reorienting. And you're learning to shift and reorienting your foundation to God and his word. And it says that, wow, this is true. You're starting to reassess. And you're starting to realign and you say, yes, this is true. You're thinking it through. It's becoming rational. You're thinking through and you're testing and you're, you're experiencing it. And you're saying this is real. And now your foundations are reorienting. And you're reorienting, then you have a foundation, one whose architect and builder is God. And that means it's lasting, and that means it's ultimate, and that means it's secure, and that means it's safe, and that means it's heavenly, and that means it's joyful, and that means there's peace. Listen, Tim Keller, my favorite preacher, Tim Keller says it like this. He says, either you're connected with God and everything is secure no matter how chaotic life looks, or you're not connected to God and nothing is secure no matter how orderly your life looks. God is gracious. God is faithful. And God is so gracious and so faithful. And he speaks to us. He calls himself our father. As a father, to show us that to put him first means that, yes, we're going to give things up. We're going to reorient our foundations. It may begin with the rational. It's going to become real. At some point, 
But then there has to be a foundational shift for the rest of your life to a person until you're birthed into a person of greatness. And, you're, and what that greatness means is you're going to be able to handle the suffering and the brokenness in your life. Some, there are people out there that are saying to themselves, I'm not even really sure. I've had many people come to me say, I'm not even really sure that I'm at the place where this is rational. There are people who have come to me and said, yeah, it's become rational to me, definitely become real to me. I, 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 I'm, I enjoy this. I feel it. I'm experiencing it, but I'm not sure if I'm able to yet make that foundational shift. You know why? It's because you're afraid of trusting God. You're afraid of trusting God. You're afraid that if you really lay your life down, that either you're going to let God down or God's going to let you down. Either God's going to let you down or you're afraid you're not going to be able to live up to whatever commitments you've made. Some sort of combination of that, you see. The last point here is faith is gracious. Faith is so gracious, it's renewing. God is so faithful. God is so gracious, it's renewing. Abram, he had the same questions. In, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 15, like I said, uh, this, this text really is a commentary of the Old Testament. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, Abram asks, Lord, how can I know? God makes him all these promises. And, and Abram says, how can I know? How can I really know? In other words, how do I trust you? And, and in that doubt, there's also, he, later on he says, how do I know I can trust myself for that matter? How do I know you're good for it? How do I know I'm good for it? What about I'm doubting you, but I'm also doubting myself? I'm, having tr- I'm struggling with trusting your words, but to be honest, I'm not even sure if I can say these things. How am I going to be able to live these things out? God then tells him, I want you to take these animals. I want you to cut them in half from head to toe, lengthwise. And when you read Genesis chapter 15, initially you read it and you say, what in the heck is going on? What is going on here? I, I'm not really sure what this means, but if you were in Abram's day, and if you, particularly if you were Abram, who lived in ancient times, understood that culture, you fully understood that this is how people made contracts in those days. If you were establishing a covenantal contract in those days, you would cut an animal in half from head to toe, lengthwise, split it apart on the side of a road or some walk area, right? And what you would do is um, you, would, uh, you would bind the contract by making a promise and then walking through in between the pieces. And then the other person, the other person in the contract would make his promise and walk through the pieces as well. That's how contracts were bound back then. It was an illiterate culture. Today we have contracts that we sign. But what do we say that even today, in our language today? We cut a deal. This is where it comes from. This is how you cut a deal back then. You arrange these animals in half and you walk through the pieces as you make the promises because what you're saying is, if I do not live up to my end of the contract, if I do not live up to my end of the deal, may I be split apart like these animals. May I be torn apart like these animals. May I be torn asunder. May I be separated from myself because my words have been separated from myself. You see, Abram starts to cut the pieces. And if you know anything about the narrative, you know what happens? There are two amazing things that happen. One, God walks through the pieces. In a blazing torch, a smoking fire part, God blazes through in between the pieces and he makes his promises. And his promise is amazing to Abram in chapter 15 of Genesis. But the most amazing thing about this is that only God walked through the pieces. 
Abram never walked through. Abram never, never had to walk through the pieces. And there and then, Abram realizes what God is promising. What he's saying on one hand is, Abram, if I don't live up to my end, if I don't live up to my end of the covenant, I will pay the penalty. I will, I will be, may I be torn asunder. May I be torn to pieces. But even if you don't live up to your end, I will pay the penalty. I will pay the price. Only me, not you. I will pay because only I can live up to the promise. And I will pay, only I will love you enough to pay, you see. In other words, no matter what, plain English, no matter what, I'm never going to give up on you. If I've called you, I'm never going to give up on you, you see. Jesus Christ says later on in the Gospels, centuries later from Genesis chapter 15, Jesus Christ says in the Gospel according to John, in John chapter 8, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. You know what that means? When Abraham asked, how can I know God makes this promise? Let me be torn apart if I don't make good on my promise. Jesus Christ is saying, you want to know how you can know? Abram was looking to me. My day. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. It's it's the last verse in our text. These people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things that they were promised, but they welcomed them from afar. Jesus Christ is saying, Abraham looked to me from afar, welcomed it from afar, anticipated it from afar, saw just a mere promise, an assurance of it, and he welcomed it from afar, and he rejoiced to see my day. You know what that means? We have a power. We have a security. We have a a strength to live that life in faith no matter what, no matter what kind of tumult, no matter what kind of suffering in our lives that will tempt us to shrink back because we have more than just a promise. We have more than just anticipation like Abraham. We have even more than an assurance. We see it in full because we've seen Jesus' day. We see Christ in full. Jesus Christ had the ultimate security. Jesus Christ lived in the Father's house. Jesus Christ had ultimate status. But in a sense, God is saying, you know, if you want to redeem these people, these people that are broken in sin, they're separated from us in sin, if these people are to be redeemed, you know what redeemed means? It means if you deem something, you're taking something from one position to another position, right? It stays in that position until what? You redeem it. To redeem it is to pay a cost, to take it from one position to another position, to take it from one ownership to another ownership. God is saying to Jesus, if you want to redeem these people, to take it from one ownership to your ownership, if you want these people as your people, if you want to take them from death to life, if you want to take them from sinner and declare them to justify them in holiness, somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay the price. You have to pay the price. You see, For them to be saved, you must pay the price. You must die. For them to be made whole, you must be torn asunder. In order for us to come in, Jesus Christ had to be excluded. And so what did Jesus do? The imperishable became vulnerable 
so that we who are perishable, we who are vulnerable, broken in sin, can be made imperishable. Jesus heard the ultimate call away from the ultimate security. Abram left security, not knowing where he was going, but it points to the greater Abraham who left into a journey into the uncertainty of infinite suffering on the cross. You know what happened on the cross? On the cross, there was another shaking of foundation. There was an earthquake, an actual earthquake. But there was complete trust. Jesus Christ wholly and fully trusted God. If you're uncertain in your life, if there is crossroads in your life, look to Jesus Christ. He journeyed to places you will never have to go because he went for you. You see that? Jesus Christ, he said, I was crushed, I was torn, I was cast out, I lost my security and my status and my wealth, and I did it for you. And so when he asks you to get out of your security zone, if he asks you to get out of your status zone, your position, if he moves you into an area of uncertainty in life, if he moves you into an area of of punishment or suffering in your life, he's not doing that to crush you. He was already crushed for you, you see? And he's so just. He's so just that he would not punish you twice for the same sin. You see? It crushed him so that it could remake you, refashion you, It begins with something that's rational. Is it rational to you? Is it becoming personal to you? Is it becoming real to you? Is it starting to shake and change your foundations, shape your foundations, reorient the the things that you've built on as your worth and your significance in life? And is it moving you by grace, moving you by the love of the one who gladly left his security and his certainty for the uncertainty of suffering for you? How do you apply that? Very quickly. One, Faith is rational. You know what that means? you got to read the Bible. Study the Word. Listen. Listen to God. Two, how do you make it real? you got to develop a personal relationship with God. That's prayer. That's worship. But it's also community. Right? Plugging in with community. Plugging into community. Three, if you're starting to ask yourself, what are the implications of a personal relationship with God? I'm afraid to let go. You know what's happening? Because words like sacrifice are entering into your life. Words like giving are entering into your life. Words like suffering or obedience coming into your life. It's going to cost you. It's going to reorient your foundations. It's going to shake your foundations up. You have to trust. Jesus Christ trusted. All the way to the cross. All the way to the infinite suffering. The infinite separation from God so that you could be brought in. Do you see that? But why do you go? So that no suffering in your life, no sacrifice in your life, no trouble in your life can truly end you. Lastly, you got to look to the grace of God in Christ. Look at the beauty of Jesus. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus and what he did. Look at the love of Jesus for our sins. In our suffering, he understands. He knows. Let that assure you that he has not abandoned you. You know why he won't abandon you? Why God won't abandon you? Because Jesus was abandoned on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let that be your certainty. You see, if you you go through the rational, if it enters into the real, sometimes that means you're going to have doubts. 
You've ever doubted your friend? You've ever doubted the love of your spouse? Earlier on, at least. Doubted your girlfriend or your boyfriend at times? Doubted relationships? You ever argue with people? Of course, we've all argued with people. That's developing a... You don't argue with people you don't have a relationship with. Maybe you do argue with people you don't have a relationship with, but the people that you are intimate with, you don't... You argue. You don't not argue with them. You argue with them more, you see? It gets more and more complicated because you're compelled. You see that? Look to the grace of God in Jesus. He suffered the ultimate quaking in his life, sacrificed everything so that you and I, we could have everything. Does that get you? If it's getting you, God is doing something in your life. Let's pray.